Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, as always, it's an honor uh, and a privilege to preach God's Word. And I want to invite you this morning to join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And we're going to give our attention to verses 28 through 34. Two great commandments, two great loves. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28 and going through verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Humans have an incurable desire to compare things, both in terms of greatest things and uh, what I call superlative things. We always want to ask the question, even when we're very young, uh, who's the fastest? Uh, Who's the strongest? Who can jump the highest? Who's the smartest? Who's the prettiest? Uh, As we get older, who's the richest? We also like to ask these mega questions, and especially do we like to put them in the context that are of popular culture interests. For example, uh, what is the greatest empire in all of world history? Would it be best to ascribe that to the Greeks or to the Romans? Or might we even say, well, no, the greatest empire ever is the United States of America. What about the greatest leader? Was it Jesus? Was it Moses? Was it Muhammad? Was it Augustus Caesar? How about the greatest American leader? Most people would probably conclude, at least a majority, that it was George Washington, but others would say no. Uh, Abraham Lincoln would at least run a close second, if not bypass him. And then others would say, well, no, you've got to look at the the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And some would even say, well, look at Ronald Reagan. After all, he brought down the Iron Curtain. Turn to sports, which many of us enjoy very much. Who was the greatest baseball player of all time? Was it Babe Ruth? Was it Willie Mays? Was it Ted Williams? Ty Cobb? Hank Aaron? I have purposefully left out the steroid boys. They don't get an opportunity to be included in this particular question. Greatest football player of all time. Again, most would say that it was a running back for the Cleveland Browns by the name of Jim Brown. But others would say, no, look at the incredible feats of Jerry Rice. And others would say, look at Joe Montana. And, of course, some that have an affinity for the Chicago Bears would bring up the name Walter Payton. Greatest basketball player. Well, here almost all would probably say it was Michael Jordan. That certainly would be my opinion. 
But others would say you've got to think of at least Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and going back to a prior generation, the names Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell appear on the screen and some would even say, what about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? What's the best movie of all time, the greatest movie of all time? Well, if you interview the most important person here today, my wife, she would say it's Gone with the Wind. And clearly that is the greatest movie that's ever been uh, portrayed. But others would say, what about uh, Casablanca? What about... uh, Perhaps my favorite, the, the Godfather, especially one and two. Three gets kicked to the curb, but one and two are, are pretty awesome. In fact, I've often said if I had uh, not been converted, I would make a great Godfather, but that's a, <laughs> another conversation for, uh, for another day. And then some of you would say, oh, uh, come on, Danny, Lord of the Rings or the series uh, with uh, Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Th- those clearly should fall into the category of the greatest movie or movies of all time. Interestingly, asking questions about the greatest uh, is not new. Clearly from the Bible, it goes all the way back to the time of Jesus because here we see in this passage a, a scribe, a lawyer comes to him and he asks him what is the most important, what Jesus refers to in verse 31 as the greatest commandment of all. And interestingly, our Lord does not give him a single commandment. He gives him two commandments. In fact, the parallel account in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40 simply says of these two commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor, on these two commandments depend, the NIV says, hang all the law and uh, the prophets. And interestingly, both of these commandments are grounded in the same ethic. They're grounded in the ethic of love. First, uh, the Lord Jesus says that we're to love God supremely. And then secondly, he says, we're to love our fellow humans genuinely. And so as we prepare to look at these verses this morning, I want to just ask you a simple question. What truly satisfies your soul? When you stop for a moment and do inventory of who you are on the inside, and you seek to be honest with yourself, what truly satisfies your soul? I think Jesus gives us the answer to that question in what he says here in our passage before us. First, he does say, we are commanded and indeed we are to love our God supremely. Verse 28 tells us that a scribe, a religious lawyer, has come to Jesus. Perhaps he has heard the disputes that have taken place throughout this very long day of controversy between our Lord and the establishment there in Jerusalem. He had been in dispute with the Sanhedrin back in chapter 11 and verse 27. Then came the Pharisees and the Herodians in chapter 12 and verse 13. Then came the Sadducees in chapter 12 and verse 18. And this uh, scribe noticed, as verse 28 says, says that Jesus answered all of them well. And so apparently, unlike these others, he comes to Jesus without malice. Uh, He has no ill will. He asked him a question that had often been bantered about among those who are interested in religious things. Which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, Jesus, which would you say is the greatest? And indeed, raising this question simply continued a long-running debate among the theologically and the religiously minded. Let's put it in its historical and religious context. The rabbinic tradition had isolated no less than 613 commandments in the books of Moses in the Torah. 365 of them were categorized as negative. 
248 of them were categorized as positive. And some even went on to say that we could also uh, weigh them in terms of degrees, some being weightier and some being of less weight and less significance, although all of them were important. Some even believe that Jesus acknowledged this idea of weightier and less commandments by what he said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. And so the scribe comes to Jesus and simply says, declare yourself. What do you believe is the greatest commandment that we find in the Word of God? And Jesus gladly obliges his question and provides a quick answer. And once again, as is often the case with our Lord, one, he gives us more than we are asking for. And secondly, he drives right to the heart of what it means to rightly relate to our God. First of all, he says that we should love God for who he is. Verse 29, Jesus responded, the most important is, literally, the first is. And then what Jesus does is he goes back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and he quotes the famous Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. This particular command, it was so important to the Jewish people that every devout Jew recited it every morning when he got up and every evening before he would go to bed. James Edwards says that the Shema was as important to Judaism as is the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed to Christianity, though we might question how important the latter is since most of you in this room have no idea what the Apostles' Creed is. It was, by the way, not written by the apostles, but it was a marvelous confession of faith that the early church uh, formulated to describe their theological affirmation and convictions of the Christian faith. But note the first sentence, the Lord Yahweh, our God Elohim, the Lord Yahweh is one. What is he saying, Moses, when he recorded those words? First of all, Yahweh, Jehovah, is his covenant name that he gave to his people. Secondly, Yahweh is our God and only our God. We have no other God. To follow after any other gods of any sort or any type is to commit the sin, the most serious sin, perhaps, of idolatry. Yahweh is one. He is one in his essence. He is one in his existence. He alone is God, and there is no other. This is a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement of his uniqueness. It's a powerful statement of his exclusivity. Our God is God alone, and our God alone will only accept our exclusive worship, our exclusive love, and our exclusive devotion, and our exclusive allegiance. No theologians of the law may debate what is the greatest commandment, but Jesus brings them back to the basics. He brings them back to the very fundamentals of the faith. He brings them back to that which is not up for debate and is absolutely non-negotiable. We should love this God because of who He is, and we should love this God because He is our God. One of the things we seek to inculcate in all of you through the class called Biblical Interpretation or Hermeneutics is to always consider the context of a passage because it will almost always shed greater light and insight into exactly what the author is trying to say. And that is true when you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and verse 5 and look both at what comes before it 
and what comes after it because I think there we are given insight and better understanding as to what does it mean to really love God in this comprehensive kind of a way. For example, to love God rightly is to obey His commandments and statutes all the days of your life, as Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 2 says. To love God rightly means you will teach these commandments to your children and to your grandchildren when? Uh, When you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7. I remember not too long ago someone asking uh, me and Charlotte, Charlotte and I, uh, what did we do as we were raising our four sons in terms of trying to teach them uh, the things of the Lord and trying to teach them to, to love and serve the Lord Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And she said, you know, we really just made Jesus a part of the family. In other words, yes, there was Danny and, and there was me and there was Nathan and Jonathan and Paul and Tim and then there was Jesus. And he was just part of the conversation all the time. When we got up in the morning, we would just, as a matter of normal life, talk about him. And we would talk about him during the day. And when we were watching television or when we were out in the backyard playing or when we were driving to school or going to church or coming home from church or whatever we were doing, he was just part of the equation all of the time. He was not someone that just dropped in on Sunday, but rather he was someone that was a part of the home when they lie down, when they got up, when they walk, and when they sit. And by the way, we don't do much more than that, do we? We lie down, we get up, we move about, and we stop and sit for a while. And so it's just simply making the Lord our God a part of our family and a part of our everyday life. But he goes on to love God means to remember. He is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, chapter 6, verse 12. And finally, to love God supremely means you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, your Elohim, in your midst is a jealous God. Verse 14 of chapter 6. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and and the teachings of Moses help kind of flesh out at least part of the answer of what it means to love God supremely. We love God supremely for who he is and for what he has done. But secondly, Jesus also tells us, as does Moses, that we're to love God with all that we are. You, if you mark your Bible like I do, should note that word all as it occurs four times there in the Shema in terms of its significance. And what he is simply saying is that we're to love God in a comprehensive kind of a way. We're to love God with a total response of who we are. In other words, God wants all of you all of the time. He's not interested in having some of you or most of you or part of you, but he wants all of you. Uh, Recently, I uh, tweeted a statement by my hero, Adrian Rogers, that uh, for some reason got significantly more traction than some of the other things I sometimes tweet, and I simply tweeted this statement that Dr. Rogers made, uh, two words can absolutely change your life. Yes, Lord. And he's right. Two simple words can change every life in this room this morning. And those two words basically summarize what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 12. Yes, Lord. In fact, I like the way Kent Hughes says it. It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all that there is of him. 
And so Jesus tells us that we're to love the Lord with our heart, probably speaking to our emotions, our desires, the real me, the real you on the inside. He says we're to love the Lord with our soul, which speaks to the spirit and the self-conscious life. He speaks of loving the Lord with our mind, something the Bible says over and over and over. We're to love God with our thought life. And then he says to love the Lord your God with all of your strength, which speaks to, to bodily powers, but perhaps even he has in mind here the will. Now, why is it that the Bible gives us this comprehensive kind of description in terms of how we love God? And I think I know the answer. All of us are prone to what I call spiritual compartmentalization. Spiritual compartmentalization. In other words, we are all prone to carve out a little area in our lives that we keep for ourselves and for our sinful desires and that we kind of exclude from the Lord. When I was first getting my life right with the Lord at about the age of 20, having been saved as a 10-year-old boy, but then having a, uh, really a recommitment of my life that was more life-changing than my, my conversion, I was given a little booklet that simply has the title, My Heart, Christ Home. And the author of that little booklet simply uses as an analogy that, that your heart is like a house. And that when Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior, he moves into the house. But he doesn't move into the house to be treated as a, an invited guest, but he moves into the house to be the, the Lord and the Master. And, and he kind of talks how Jesus moves his way through the house and begins to get things in order. You know, you don't have to be cleaned up before you come to Jesus, but when you come to Jesus, he will clean you up. And so he begins to work in your kitchen and begins to get certain appetites uh, in right order. And then he moves into the the family room and begins to kind of oversee the things that you watch and the things that you read. And then he begins to move into the bedroom because there he needs to be the sovereign Lord of your intimate life, your sex life. But he says many of us have the, the tendency to give Jesus most all of that, but yet we'll keep a closet down the hallway with a lock that we keep the key to. And Jesus comes into our hallway one day and walks down to that closet that has that key, and he says, there's something in there that that smells. There's something in there that is rotting. There's something in there that doesn't belong in there. And we kind of bristle back at Jesus and we say, well, hey, wait a minute. I've given you almost all of the house. You've got the kitchen and you've got the family room and you've got the bedroom. And and I can keep this little closet for myself. And the next thing you know, Jesus is not standing in the hallway. In fact, he's not downstairs in the family room. He's out on the front porch and he just simply says to you, I won't dwell in a house where that closet is not submitted to my lordship. I want to tell you what, I was undone by that little booklet because I realized that though I was making wonderful progress in my sanctification, there were still errors of my life, as there is unfortunately today, that I want to kind of block off from Jesus and have a personal key to and just pretty much say, look, I've given you almost everything. I mean, do you really have to have everything And he says, yes, I really have to have everything. Sam Storms is a pastor out in the Kansas City area, and he points out 
uh, in speaking to this text, that there's a beautiful analogy that can be drawn between the way a man rightly loves his wife and the way a believer rightly loves his God. And I took what he said and simply crafted it into about 10 questions that I think we do well to ask, not only in the way that we do relate to our mate, but also in the way that we relate to our God. And I'll just walk through them quickly. Is the Lord truly the all-consuming passion of my life? Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? Am I zealous to, with grace, defend my Lord's name and honor? Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase His joy? Do I brag on my Lord to others? Do I tell my Lord that I love Him? Do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? And I would remind all of us this morning, these are not things you do to get God to love you. These are things you do because you are loved by God, and now in response, you love Him. Never forget that 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 makes clear, I love Him because He first loved me. And therefore, these are ways that we can love our God supremely, both for who He is and also with all that we are. But then secondly, we're also told in verses 31 through 34 that we're commanded to love others genuinely. As I said earlier, Jesus often gives us more than we ask for. The religious lawyer, he asked for a single commandment, and Jesus actually gave him two, two that hang together, two that go together, two that are twins that should never be separated. Now, why is that the case? Because How you respond to the first, loving God, will determine how you respond to the second, loving your neighbor. And when you are loving your neighbor, the second command, that gives evidence that you're also loving your God, the first command. So Jesus challenges us not only to love the Lord supremely, he challenges us to love others genuinely. Now, let me show you three aspects of this love that Jesus says we're to have for our neighbor. First of all, very interestingly, such love is legitimately selfish. Now, let that sink in. Such love is legitimately selfish. Jesus, in verse 31, adds Leviticus 19, 18 as a compliment Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And growing out of my love for God, I now love those who have been created by God in His image. Furthermore, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we find in uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, makes it very clear that neighbor is not here to be used in a restrictive sense. He's not telling us to love the person next door. He's not telling us to love the person who has the same skin color as do we. He's not telling us to love those people who are in the same socioeconomic or educational status as are we. No, he's basically telling us you're to love anyone and everyone who bears the image of God. And he tells us, interestingly, in something of an enigma, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Wow! Well, that sounds very selfish and self-centered and even narcissistic. 
And Jesus, the unselfish one, is actually telling me to selfishly love myself? How do we make any sense of that statement? Let me make four quick observations that I hope will help us first. There is a healthy kind of self-love that recognizes the truth that we are the objects both of God's creating love and God's redeeming love. In fact, for you to hate yourself is actually to call into question the very wisdom and the very goodness of God. God made you after His image, in His image, and God sacrificed His Son on your behalf. And so there's a sense in which I rightly love myself because my God loves me far greater than I could ever love myself. Secondly, the love a person naturally has for himself, and we all have a, a natural, God-given, innate uh, love for ourselves, is now turned out. We, we take that which was initially coming in, and we now turn it out, and we begin to focus that same affection and that same concern for others. Basically, it's mind of Christ stuff that's going on here. We all know Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But you should naturally again ask the question, well, what does the mind of Christ look like? Well, it looks like verses 3 and 4 that precede it. Let, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Look out, not only for your own interest, Look out also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That love I naturally have for myself, I now turn out, and it is now directed toward others. Third, the fact that this is a command makes it very clear that the primary, I would not say the exclusive, but the primary focus is on our actions, not our feelings and not our emotions. Uh, just speaking personally for a moment, I can say with absolute integrity, in almost 34 years of being married to my wife Charlotte, there has never been a time in my life where I did not love her. Now, there have been times when I did not like her, especially when she wasn't acting like Jesus. On those particular occasions, uh, I struggled a little bit in the likability category, but no, I I'm not called by God to love her if she does lovely things, or I'm not called by God to love her because she behaves or acts in a certain kind of way. I'm called by God to love her anyway. I'm called by God to love her even when she's not lovely in exactly the same way that Jesus loved you and loved me when he died on the cross for our sins because I want to remind all of us this morning, none of us was lovely when he bore in his body the full weight and penalty of our sins. Fourth, I grant that there is certainly a mysterious paradox in all of this, for the same Jesus who tells us to love ourselves also tells us both to deny ourselves and to die to ourselves in Mark 8, verse 34. And so here's what I've concluded, though I may not be able to fully understand it, I fully embrace it. Now listen, the more I truly love myself, the more I will deny myself and love others. So that doesn't make sense. I don't care whether it makes sense or not. <laughs> I think it's biblical. The more I truly love Danny Aiken, 
the more I will deny myself and love others. I, I, I do have a, an experiential sense in which I think I'm beginning to understand this better. You say, what do you mean? I'll come back to my family again. When am I most happy? When am I experiencing the most joy in my life? I'll tell you when. When my wife is happy. When my sons are happy. When my daughter-in-laws are happy. When my grandchildren, when, when they are happy and when they are enjoying life. I'm just telling you, everything's good for me. Because I deeply, deeply love them. And because I'm growing in loving them rightly, my joy is connected to their joy. My happiness is connected to their happiness. And so it's not looking so much at Danny Aiken to find happiness as it is to find happiness in the joy and the blessing of others. And so what this simply means is to love my neighbor as myself means I will serve the needs of others with all the energy, with all the passion, and with all the zeal with which I serve and attempt to meet my own needs. But here's the key. Only by loving my God supremely can I truly love others genuinely. No wonder Jesus said there is no greater commandment than these. How many of you were here back in February when Don Carson preached on Friday night at our 2020 conference? Let me see your hand. Man, wasn't that not one of the most fantastic messages you've ever heard in your life? It was incredible. And he, if you remember, said, you know, one of the ways we learn to understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, taken from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is context context, go back and look at Leviticus 19 and you'll find out that God actually helps us understand quite well what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so I went back and looked at it and actually there are no less than 12 things that, uh, that Moses records beginning back in verse 10 going through verse 17, verse 18 that tells you what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. For example, he tells us that we're to care for the poor. We're not to steal. We're not to lie. We're to be fair in business dealings. We're to care for the deaf. We're to care for the blind. We're to deal justly with all. We're to avoid slander. We're not to jeopardize the life of our neighbor. We're not to hate our neighbor in our heart. And we're to rebuke our neighbor when necessary for his and your good. We're not to take revenge or bear a grudge against others. And all of that comes together to help us understand what it means to love well our neighbor. And I think you would acknowledge, as I think we should, this, this list is not exhaustive. In other words, he's telling us that we should have a special affection and concern for the hurting, for the abused, for the abandoned, for the enslaved, and for the lost. And I'm reminded what John Piper has so well said in the context of living this out when it comes to the Great Commission. Taking the gospel means we take the gospel to people who don't want us there and who don't want to hear what we have to say, and yet we still go. Why? Because we love them. We take the gospel to people who don't want us there, and we share good news that they don't want to hear because they do need to hear. So such love is legitimately selfish. Secondly, such love is a true sacrifice. The scribe finally responds there in verse 32, and he says, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, and here's the, here's the insight, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. 
He simply was picking up, by the way, on a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. Just listen as I read them to you. Three verses, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Proverbs 21, 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. In Hosea 6, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. These are the sacrifices that truly please our Lord. So such love is legitimately selfish, and it is a true sacrifice. And then finally, such love is crucial to our salvation. Verse 34, Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and then he made again another enigmatic statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow. What does that mean? Does he, in essence, say to the man, look, you're, you're close, so, so try harder. Uh, you're close, so work a little harder and you will make it in. No, that's not at all what it means. Rather, I think Jesus is commending the man because he's come to see that ultimately eternal life, ultimately getting into the kingdom of God is not a matter of ritual. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of heart, uh, hard duty as much as it is a matter of heart devotion because you come to recognize that what is most important to the Lord are not the things I do with my hands or my feet, but what is most near and dear to my Lord is what I do with Him in my heart. And in essence, I come to understand I need a new heart. I need a new me. I need 2 Corinthians five seventeen to be lived out in my life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Then old things pass away, and now all things become new. But yet at the same time, I have to say to you all this morning, these words haunt me. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He said that to a theologian. He said that to a person who was very religiously minded. In other words, my suspicion and even my fear is that one of the most dangerous places in all the world for a lost person to be is in a Bible college or a seminary. I fear that there are many in our churches. And I fear that there could be even some here today who are very near to the kingdom, but they're not in. Charles Spurgeon had that same concern for his own church. Think about it, the great Spurgeon. No one more faithfully preached the gospel than did he for several decades, and yet Spurgeon, in commenting on this text, said it this way, So near to the kingdom, yet what do you lack? So near to the kingdom, what keeps you back? Denounce every idol, though dear it may be, and come to the Savior now pleading with thee. So near that you hear the songs that resound from those who believing a pardon have found. So near yet unwilling to give up your sin when Jesus is waiting to welcome you in. To die with no hope, have you counted the cost? To die out of Christ and your soul to be lost. So near to the kingdom, O come we implore, while Jesus is pleading, come enter the door. 
near to the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. The difference has all to do with your heart and with Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these verses that convict me uh, greatly about my need to love you supremely and to love my neighbors genuinely. And Lord, I'll be the first to confess it's much easier to love those that I like and those that are like me. And yet that's not how you identify my neighbor. My neighbor is the person who may have wronged me. My neighbor may be the person who is uh, in gross sin and idolatry. My neighbor may be someone who hates me. And yet their disposition toward me is not anywhere on the radar screen here. All that matters is my disposition toward you and toward them. And Lord, I hope we all leave today understanding I can never love my neighbor as I ought unless I love my Lord as I should. With all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. So ultimately, Lord, any problem I have in loving my neighbor gives evidence of a problem that I have in loving my God. So Lord, may I start where Jesus told us to start, loving you with all that I am, and then out of the overflow of loving you, suddenly, supernaturally, miraculously, I find the ability to love those who don't want me around, to love those who don't want to hear what I have to say, and to love those who might even seek to take my life because I have a message they absolutely must hear. And I have a God that they desperately need to know. Lord, may all of us find conviction then in these words, and may our lives be changed and transformed by them. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.